morning. Our next case is NRA SR, and we will hear from the appellant. May it please the court, my name is Ed Eldred. I represent Tiffany Roberto, the petitioner appellant in this case. I would like to reserve half of my time for rebuttal. Your Honors, I agree with what my colleague writes on page 10 of the appellee's brief. This case is simple. It began when Ms. Roberto filed a petition alleging, among other things, that the respondent's parental rights could be terminated under 7B1111A4 because a child support order existed, was enforceable, and that the respondent failed to pay according to the order in the year before Ms. Roberto filed her petition. The respondent has never disputed those allegations, did not deny it in his answer, in fact admitted that he was ready to fulfill his, quote, obligation. He did not present any evidence at the hearing, the termination hearing, or give any argument disputing the allegations. In the Court of Appeals, he again never alleged the support order did not exist, that it was not enforceable, or that he paid according to it. Unsurprisingly, then, the Court of Appeals held that Ms. Roberto did establish that an order was in effect. Likewise, in this court, he has never asserted that the order did not exist, was enforceable, or that he paid according to it. In short, the respondent has never disputed the merit of Ms. Roberto's claim that the respondent's parental rights could be terminated under A4. Because as this court held in CLH, the existence of a child support order in effect at the relevant time, if it had been included in the factual findings, would support a conclusion that respondent had the ability to pay some portion of the cost of care for the juvenile. A support order was in place and in effect at the relevant time in this case. The respondent instead relies on the trial court's failure to make a specific finding of fact that an order existed, which is true. There is no specific finding of fact that says a child support order existed in the year before Ms. Roberto filed the petition. But as Ms. Roberto argued in the brief, it's plain from the trial court's findings that the trial court accepted an order existed. Again, which is not surprising because the parties never disputed it. The respondent never disputed that. So as I said, the case is simple. Ms. Roberto should have prevailed at least on the A4 ground. The Court of Appeals was wrong to reach the conclusion that it did. Even if the trial court's general findings were not specific enough to say that an order existed, the remedy from the Court of Appeals should not have been to affirm the order. The remedy should have been remand to the trial court with an instruction to make a finding. Counsel, on that, if an appellate court is instructing a trial court to make a finding, isn't that in fact a finding by the appellate court? An instruction to make a finding? Well, I don't think an instruction to make a finding is a finding. In this case, the Court of Appeals... Well, if we are instructing someone that they have to make a finding of fact, doesn't that mean that the appellate court has weighed the evidence in some way, shape, or fashion? Well, the appellate court could say, make a finding one way or the other on this material fact. 
because the Court of Appeals has said Ms. Roberto did establish the order was in effect, if there was a remand for an instruction to make a finding, it would seem uh, that the trial court would have to follow the Court of Appeals holding. Right, but if even in your scenario where you're instructing uh, the, the trial court to make some finding, um, perhaps the trial court already weighed the evidence and gave the existence of, of an order no weight, right? It isn't, isn't the weighing of the evidence in the sole discretion of the fact finder? The weighing of the evidence is in the discretion of the fact finder, yes. And, and so a fact finder can give uh, evidence that comes before it no weight or as much weight as it wants, right? And, and, and if, if the trial court has already given no weight to a particular finding, why is it incumbent upon an appellate court to instruct the court to make a finding? But the trial court cannot ignore uh, material uh, allegations in a, in a pleading. It cannot just ignore evidence and say, I'm just not going to make a finding on that. You have to resolve it one way or the other. Well, it isn't, isn't no finding, uh, in some cases, a finding? Um, I suppose in some cases it could be. Um, but the order either exists or it doesn't. Are you suggesting that by saying, by not making a finding at all, the trial court saying the order didn't exist? Well, so so if if the trial court determines that that the existence of the order is entitled to no weight, why should there be any finding? I think the trial court would be wrong if that's what the trial court said, because whether the order exists is necessary finding for the A4 ground. Either it exists or it doesn't. The trial court has to make a determination about that. So, so the, the failure to make a finding uh, is error? I would say that is an error in this case, yes. The failure to make a finding on a material fact is an error. You have to resolve the issue. Because we're trying to get to the merits of the claim. And the claim depends, that particular claim depends on whether the order existed. If it doesn't exist and wasn't enforceable, Ms. Roberto loses on the A4 ground. If it does exist, she wins because he did not pay which he's never denied. Counsel, um, do you agree that to satisfy A4 that the failure to pay has to be uh, willful and without justification? Um, it does, but in CLH, the court held that if the order exists, that establishes the respondent's ability to pay. And if he's not paying and he has the ability to pay, it's willful. So finding of fact 25 in the trial court's order says that um, the father was under the impression that he was no longer required to pay child support. Mm -hmm. um, is it possible to find that the failure was, was it possible for the trial court to have concluded that the failure to pay was willful when it had found as a fact that the father uh, did not believe he was required to pay child support? Uh, but the Court of Appeals held that there was no evidence or testimony that Mr. Savard believed he was no longer required to pay child support. So that's not, not an issue, I don't believe. And Mr. Uh, Savard has not challenged that, that conclusion in this court. As Ms. Roberta was only required to prove 
uh, one ground in order to get to the best interest stage. And as she did prove at least the A4 ground, the uh, answer in this case is to remand to the trial court to make findings and to move to best interest. As I said, the case is simple. It really is that easy. I do want to address uh, the issue of Mr. Savard's pleadings where he did not deny the allegation that the order existed and that he failed to pay as required by the decree. The court addressed a similar issue in CLH. The allegation in that case was not as specific as the one in this case. That allegation was the parties entered into a consent child support order. Uh, did not say the order was in existence, did not say the respondent failed to pay. The majority in CLH concluded <coughs> that the admission by the respondent to that allegation was not good enough. The dissent said it would have made, it did make, the admission did make that issue an uncontested fact. The allegation in this case, as I said, much more specific. It specifically says it existed and Mr. Savard did not pay as required by the decree. He did not deny that allegation. He only said, I denied as to willfulness. In the case of Faircloth, which I submitted to the court yesterday, uh, which is not binding on the court because it's a court of appeals opinion, that court did held, hold that by failing to deny certain allegations in the petition, the respondent admitted certain other allegations. That's exactly what happened here. The respondent has admitted by his failure to deny in his answer that the order existed and that he did not pay according to it. Again, he has never disputed the merit of that assertion, ever. The last thing I wanted to address was the contention that the Court of Appeals last two paragraphs are dicta. Uh, they're not. They're not dicta because the Court of Appeals is essentially holding that where the trial court makes, fails to make a finding on a material fact uh, and does not terminate parental rights, it's not an error because the trial court's never required to terminate parental rights. Uh, the analysis goes against what the Court of Appeals even said earlier in its opinion, where if you don't get past the first stage, you don't get to the second stage. The Court of Appeals ignores that and jumps to the second stage and says, well, it's a harmless error. That's never been the law in this state. Uh, even the Court of Appeals acknowledging that. It's not dicta. This court should at least issue an opinion disavowing the language from the last two paragraphs. As I said, the case is simple. That's all I really have unless there are other questions. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from the appellee. May it please the court. My name is Jackie Brammer and I represent the appellee respondent father in this case. Um, this case is simple, as the uh, appellant said. Um, it is about a mother petitioner who prevented a father from being part of that child's life, had an agenda to terminate his rights that was years in the making prior to the termination petition, and she ultimately tried to cut the father out of the child's life. And that is the way the trial court saw this case. When it dismissed the termination petition for lacking clear and convincing evidence, and that is the way the Court of Appeals saw this case when it affirmed the Court of 
the trial court's conclusion to dismiss the petition for lack of clear and convincing evidence, and it unanimously affirmed in a published opinion. And that's what this court should see this case as well, and it should affirm the Court of Appeals' opinion. So in the trial court, the, the mother alleged uh, three termination grounds, the abuse-neglect ground of 7B1111A1, the child support ground and private termination 7B1111A4, and the willful abandonment ground of 7B1111A7. Now in this case, the trial court heard from seven witnesses in the termination hearing. Uh, it heard from the petitioner, the child's mother, it heard from the petitioner's mother, the maternal grandmother, and it heard from the petitioner's new husband. It also heard from the respondent father. It heard from the respondent father's mother and the respondent father's aunt. That would be the paternal grandmother and the paternal aunt. And it also heard from the guardian ad litem. So that's seven different witnesses. And the guardian ad litem, by the way, was opposed to termination in this case. But so that's seven witnesses that provided several hours of testimony over two different days for a termination hearing. So it, it started in January of 2021, and they they had a continuance for a month to finish the hearing later in March 2021. So this isn't a short hearing with just one witness of less than an hour or something like that. It's, it's a, lo a long time for the trial court to hear these witnesses. And after hearing all these witnesses and all this testimony over several hours, it heard both sides present several witnesses, the trial court concluded no clear and convincing evidence of any of these termination grounds and dismissed the petition. Now, when the Court of Appeals reviewed this case, it first looked at the abuse neglect ground of 7B1111A1, and it also looked at the willful abandonment ground. And it concluded upon a review of the record that the trial court's conclusion was clearly supported to dismiss those grounds. So I think the primary question before this court, as the appellant has uh, talked about, is the child support ground and private terminations, 7B1111A4. So 7B1111A4 has three elements, at least, not, not two, not just whether or not there's a child support order and whether or not there's some degree of non-payment, but there has to be a third element, which is what Justice Allen was getting at, which is whether the non-payment is willful without justification. So that is a third required element to terminate on those grounds. If you look at 7B1111A3, there's no language in there about whether or not non-payment is without justification. So that would be the child support ground and sort of DSS government-initiated terminations. There's an entire different language in the other child support ground, 7B1111A4. So the General Assembly has required that in private terminations, non-payment must be found to be willful without justification. So when the trial court heard this matter, the trial court made a finding of fact that the respondent father's non-payment was not willful without justification. This is exactly what Justice Allen's getting at. So finding a fact 25 aside, whether or not that was supported or not, as the Court of Appeals has already addressed, the trial court still made a fact finding that the respondent father's non-payment was not willful without justification. So when the Court of Appeals looked at this case, it primarily focused on whether or not there was a child support order in existence. Now, the Court of Appeals applied the correct standard of review, which is whether or not the trial court's findings of fact are supported by clear and convincing evidence, and whether or not those findings of fact support the conclusion of law. So here, the conclusion of law was to dismiss the termination petition and all grounds for lacking clear and convincing evidence. So when the Court of Appeals looked at this court's precedent of CLH, which we've already been mentioned by appellant, a CLH says if there's no finding of fact of a child support order, then you cannot have the A4 ground supported. So in this case, the trial court, of course, does not make a finding of fact of a child support order. It's, it's been conceded, and as Justice Berger was getting at as well. So 
when there's no finding effect of a child support order, there's no A4 ground. That, you can sort of stop the analysis right there, and that's what the Court of Appeals did. They said, we looked at this order. We do not find a finding effect of a child support order, so that's really all we need to get into about the A4 ground. So they dismissed that, excuse me, the trial court dismissed the termination ground, but the Court of Appeals affirmed that conclusion. The Court of Appeals determined the trial court's conclusion of law to dismiss was supported for at least one reason, because there's no finding effect of a child support order in existence the year prior to the petition. And, and counsel, is the failure to make a finding of fact an abuse of discretion? Um, no, I, I don't believe it would be abuse of discretion at all. I think in these cases, the trial court is the fact finder, and the trial court makes credibility determinations. So the trial court gets to hear both parties present evidence, and the trial court is the one who gets to make findings of fact. So if the trial court hears evidence from one party, or they review documents, and the trial court this is sort of like the, the last oral argument. If the trial court does not find those documents to be credible or reliable or whatever the basis is, the trial court is not required to say, I'm going to make a finding of fact on this document or this testimony. It also is not required to say, I reviewed this document and found it not credible or uh, not reliable. It can just disregard the document entirely. So uh, I, I would say no. It is not an abuse of discretion for a trial court to fail to make a finding of fact on evidence presented. Um, and this court has made similar uh, rules of law or in uh, holdings and other opinions in the best interest determination when a trial court receives evidence. It, it, all it has to do is consider that evidence. It doesn't have to make a finding of fact on every evidence, every piece of evidence considered or every uh, witness that testifies. Basically, trial courts do not have to make findings of fact on all evidence presented. What the trial court has to do is consider the evidence presented and then make findings of fact that must be supported by clear and convincing evidence, at least at an adjudication hearing and a termination proceeding. And that's what the trial court did in this case. If the, if the trial court in this case doesn't find the petitioner's evidence clear and convincing, it certainly isn't required to make a finding of fact saying, I don't find the petitioner's evidence clear and convincing. I mean, the trial court can make findings of fact that show that it considered this evidence and dismissed the petition. And that's what it did here. The trial court's findings of fact show that it considered the respondent's evidence, excuse me, the petitioner's evidence, and the witnesses, again, we seven witnesses here, documentary evidence. So the trial court findings of fact show that it considered all this evidence from all these witnesses, all this testimony, and it found the father's non-payment to be willful without justification. Excuse me, it did not, it found it to be not willful without justification. So um, to get back to your question, Justice Berger, no, I do not believe that it's an abuse of discretion for a trial court to make a finding of fact on evidence presented. Um, so getting back to the A4 ground here, um, when the Court of Appeals looked at this case again, CLH says if there's no finding of fact of a child support order, the A4 ground is not supported, and we can conclude the analysis there, and that's what the Court of Appeals did. Now, there's an entire separate basis for the trial court's conclusion to be affirmed. Um, and that is that the trial court, again, found the respondent father's non-payment to be, to be not willful without justification. So you have what the Court of Appeals opinion says, based on this court's precedent, CLH, if there's no finding of fact of a child support order in existence the year prior to the petition, then the A4 ground's not supported, and we can affirm the dismissal of the petition. And then you have the consideration of whether or not non-payment is willful without justification here, the trial court says his non-payment is not willful without justification. So 
And if you look at the opinion, those that word, excuse me, if you look at the, uh, the trial court's order, that language is actually italicized by the trial court in its, making, in its findings of fact regarding whether or not there was willful abandonment or willful without justification non-payment of child support. The trial court italicizes the word willful, and it also italicizes the language willful without justification. So clearly, the trial court honed in on this issue of willfulness without justification, and it found that the respondent father did not willfully without justification fail to pay child support. So I think the analysis of um, the A4 ground is pretty cut and dry. There's no finding effect of a child support order here, uh, and the trial court doesn't have to make one anyway. And even if the trial court did make a finding effect of a child support order, uh, it would be respondent father's position that that finding effect would not be supported because uh, when we get to the issue of pleadings and whether or not there is some sort of admission or a lack of denial of a child support order in effect a year prior to the petition, when you look at the, um, the termination petition, it alleges that there was a child support order entered in November 2014, which that is conceded. There was a child support order in November of 2014, and this is in the record supplement as well. So it was before the trial court. It was before the parties. We, we concede there is a child support order entered in November of 2014. But the issue with that child support order is that around 2018, 2019, the petitioner because she had an agenda to terminate the father's parental rights, and that's in the trial court's findings effect. The trial court found the respondent mother had an, excuse me, the petitioner had an agenda to terminate the respondent father's rights. She changed child support enforcement out of 4D. This would be out of DSS child support enforcement and changed it to private enforcement. So that's, that's sort of undisputed as well in the testimony and in the trial court's findings effect. The respondent mother changed enforcement from 4D to non-4D. That would be from DSS child support enforcement into private enforcement. Now, the significance of this is that according to Chapter 110, and this is in the, um, the first memorandum of additional authority I filed uh, back a couple of weeks ago, Chapter 110 says that if you're going to change child support orders from wage withholding to non-wage withholding, which is what happened in this case, the respondent father's pay stubs show that he was getting uh, child support wages with his wages were being withheld for child support. If you're going to change a child support order from that to a non-wage withholding setup, or you're going to change it from centralized collections into private enforcement, meaning it's in being enforced by the petitioner individually, that that's a modification of the existing child support order. So there has to be a new child support order that would show that different arrangement. So basically, the child support order that we have in the record that was alleged in the termination petition from being from November 2014 that's not, the that's not the child support order that was in effect the year prior to the petition, which is sort of the, the key child support order question, which is it's not just do we have a child support order and do we have a finding effect of a child support order, but it's is this child support order in effect the year prior to the petition? And the Court of Appeals also does not say the child support order was in effect the year prior to the petition. That is not what the Court of Appeals opinion says. It just says it was in effect. And it was in effect at some time up until it was no longer in effect when it was modified to end wage withholding and to move the child support order into private enforcement. Uh, counselor, yes. um, to be, uh, help me remember, was the, the issue that you are argue, arguing now uh, regarding Chapter 110, was that argued before the Court of Appeals? Uh, no, Your Honor, it was not. So why would you expect it to be in your opinion? I, 
I'm sorry, will you repeat the question? Yes, um, uh, I'll try to be more artful. Um, I thought I just heard you say that the Court of Appeals didn't address this in their opinion. And so my question to you is, if it was not argued before them and brought to their attention, why would you expect it to have been in their opinion? So I don't believe the issue of whether or not there was a finding effect of a child support order was before the Court of Appeals either. I think they're kind of extrapolating from the issue of whether or not the A4 ground is supported. So I think the issue before the Court of Appeals was pretty simply the appellant argues that the termination grounds are supported and the respondent father argued they were not. And so when the Court of Appeals looked at the A4 ground, they looked at CLH and they said, here, we don't have a finding effect of a child support order, therefore, there's no A4 ground. But it's, it's not as, as if that was really the central issue before the Court of Appeals in the briefing. At least as I remember it, it's more, do the findings of fact support the conclusion of law to dismiss? And, and obviously, the appellant's position would be that there was clear and convincing evidence to support termination. So I don't, I don't really think the issue was whether or not there was a child support order in effect at the time of the hearing being the primary issue before the Court of Appeals. And so, um, Counselor, are you arguing it that arguing that position now? Is that where you, where you yeah, are? So I, what I am arguing now is that if we're focusing on that child support issue, excuse me, if we're focusing in on whether or not there was a child support order in effect the year prior to the petition, which I think is something that the Court of Appeals opinion kind of, they're kind of extrapolating as, as sort of a, a, an issue, then I think the question of whether or not the order that is in the record that was before the trial court is even something that an appellate court could consider evidence to f sufficient to make a finding effect on whether or not that order existed the year prior to the petition. So it, if I'm not being clear, I think the Court of Appeals sort of generated this issue, and I think that that's what sort of creates the evidentiary question of whether or not the order that's in the record that was before the trial court was in effect a year prior to the petition. Thank you, Counselor. Yes. So, but I want to be clear, I don't think that's the only question before this court or the only question bearing on the A4 analysis. That's, that's just one reason. I think it's pretty clear from reading the trial court's order that it considered the father's non-payment to, to not be willful without justification. Or put another way, the trial court considered the father's non-payment to be with justification. The trial court's findings, in fact, show the mother had an agenda to terminate his rights, that she had talked to an attorney and tried to figure out how to cause his non-payment of child support. The attorney suggested, hey, maybe if you change child support enforcement out of 4D, which would be, again, DSS initiated, and move it into non-4D, you stop the wage withholding, maybe he'll stop paying. And that's, that's essentially what the trial court found, that the trial court's findings also show the father was paying through wage withholding just fine. So what you have here is a child support order is entered, the respondent father gets a job later on, his child support is being waged withheld, and that seems to be working just fine, according to the trial court's order, according to the evidence before the trial court. And then at some point, the mother contacts an attorney, says, hey, I want to talk about termination grounds possibly, on the respondent father, and then she changes the child support enforcement. The trial court hears all this evidence and then says, the father is not willfully without justification paying child support because it seems like the mother had an agenda. She was trying to cause his non-payment. So that's why you have the two separate issues. You have what the Court of Appeals focuses on, which is whether or not there's a finding effect of a child support order, and there is not. And then you have whether or not his payment, excuse me, whether or not payment is willful without justification. And here, it is not. 
So two totally separate bases in order to affirm the dismissal of the trial court's, uh, excuse me, to affirm the Court of Appeals opinion, which affirms the, court, uh, the trial court's dismissal of the termination petition for lacking clear and convincing evidence on the child support ground. So the, the other two grounds, um, I think those, I, th I don't think the uh, petitioner in their brief anyway is alleging any mistakes of law or errors of law in the Court of Appeals opinion on the abuse neglect ground or on the willful abandonment ground. And I think those are fairly straightforward, but I just want to touch on those briefly. When it comes to the willful abandonment ground, again, I think the trial court's order reflects that it thought the mother had an agenda to terminate the father's rights, that she was withholding the child from him, that th these are undisputed findings of fact by the trial court. So in, in the, the, the petitioner's new brief to this court, it only sort of challenges one finding of fact, which is not any of these. So these are all undisputed binding, supported by clear and convincing evidence findings of fact, that the mother had an agenda to terminate the father's rights, that she was planning to terminate his rights since 2018, that the petitioner ignored the respondent father's communications, that the respondent father was blocked on social media, that the respondent father still tried to get photos of his daughter um, through collaterals, through friends of friends on Facebook, that kind of thing, that the petitioner moved away without telling the respondent father her address, that she changed the child's last name without informing the respondent father or giving him notice of that action, that she tried to thwart and prevent the, and hinder the respondent father's ability to be part of their lives, and that despite all that, the respondent father still made efforts to be part of the child's life, and that the respondent father did not show an intention to forego all parental rights. So those are all unchallenged binding findings of fact. And the last one, by the way, where the respondent father did not show an intention to give up all parental rights, that is basically the abandonment standard. If the trial court had made a finding of fact that the respondent father did show an intent to forego all parental rights, that would essentially establish the, the willful abandonment ground. But because there was no intent to forego all parental rights and the respondent father did not willfully abandon the child, I think, again, pretty cut and dry on the willful abandonment ground of 7B 1111A7. When it comes to the abuse neglect ground, the trial court's findings of fact, again, show they found no abuse, no neglect of the child. I think um, the 7B 1111A1 ground wasn't really. And, Counselor, before you move on to that, I, I would like to uh, ask for, for some clarification. Ignoring your argument that there wasn't a uh, support order in effect at all, uh, is it reasonable to think that a parent would uh, understandably believe they didn't have to pay for their child? In no child support at all when there had been an order but it was no longer being forced collected? Is it reasonable to think that, uh, that, that a parent has no responsibility? And I, what brought that to mind is you're saying he did not willfully abandon his child. Well, the corollary to that could be that, well, if you haven't abandoned, do you not also have to pay for the financial means for your child? How do you address that and, and what, what, what's your position there consistent with, uh, in light of the argument you just made about abandonment? So. I think whether or not non-payment is willful without justification is a fact question for the trial court. I think that when this court analyzes questions of willfulness in other contexts, such as willful abandonment, or justifiable reliance in other contexts, this would be uh, issues I've raised in my brief, I think those are fact questions for the trial court. So again, going back to all the witnesses the trial court heard, all the multiple hours of testimony, the trial court 
this was a face-to-face -face hearing. So this wasn't WebEx or anything like that. The, the parties were before the trial court. They saw them face-to-face. -face. So these are – the trial court gets to make credibility determinations of these people by seeing them face-to-face, -face, detecting things like tenor, tone of voice, body language, demeanor, posture. I mean, all, all the sort of things that a trial court in a bench trial gets to assess. And after hearing all these people and making that kind of credibility determination, the, the trial court made a finding of fact that the respondent father's nonpayment was not willful without justification. So in these kinds of cases, the trial court is the one who gets to determine whether or not nonpayment is willful or without justification. And it, it gets to know details and see things that are not obvious from the cold record or the printed page. So I think, I think I would say it's a fact question for the trial court ultimately. Thank you for your answer. Yes, Your Honor. Um, going back to the 7B1111A1 neglect ground, Again, I don't think the petitioner has alleged any uh, mistake of law in the Court of Appeals' opinion, and I think it, the Court of Appeals correctly applied the standard review, which is whether or not the trial court's findings of fact are supported by clear and convincing evidence. And in this case, uh, I think they are. And I think those findings of fact, again, show the petitioner having an agenda to terminate the respondent father's rights, withholding the child, preventing the respondent father from being part of their lives, essentially trying trying to remove him from their lives as much as they can, and then ultimately trying to cause termination grounds. I think that's the way the trial court saw this case. And the trial court made a finding of fact there was no abuse and neglect in this case. Um, so, and I think this court has the authority to declare review improvidently granted on the willful abandonment ground and the abuse and neglect ground, because again, I don't think the petitioner is alleging any mistakes of law on either of those grounds, and I think that when there's no error of law in the Court of Appeals' opinion, the petitioner is not alleging one. I think, I think the, the, the main issue before this court is the one that the petitioner primarily focused on, which is the, uh, the child support ground and private termination, 7B1111A4. So in closing, I would just say that, again, the trial court heard from a lot of witnesses and it got to make credibility determinations. It heard from family members, petitioner themselves, the respondent father himself, and several hours of testimony, two days, over a month apart, and the trial court ultimately determined no clear and convincing evidence of abuse or neglect, no clear and convincing evidence of willful abandonment, and no clear and convincing evidence of non-payment of child support that was not willful without justification. And again, the guardian ad litem was opposed to termination in this case. Uh, that, that isn't really that much of a big issue, but the, the when the guardian ad litem testified, the guardian ad litem was troubled by the fact that, that according to the guardian ad litem, the respondent mother told them they had been trying to talk about terminating the respondent's father's rights since 2015. So this was sort of a plan in the making going back several years to try to figure out how to, we can get this father's rights terminated. And again, this isn't a DSS case. This isn't, there's no underlying adjudications of anything. There's no governmental involvement here. It's essentially a divorce case that, that went bad. And because in those kinds of cases, we still don't require that parents' rights be terminated because again, that's a civil death penalty. So I think in this kind of case, there's no clear and convincing evidence of any of the termination grounds that are alleged. Can I, can I just take you back for a moment to yes, the um, earlier questioning about whether um, the willful without justification is, is a factual issue or a legal issue. And, it, and it, so my question is, if, if the law clearly uh, requires that parents financially support their children, 
and the evidence in this case is that the father is employed, um, isn't it a legal then determination that he that his failure to support this child is is without justification? What 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 make what facts could make it justified? I guess that's sort of what my question is. What facts could make it justified? or un unwilling um, for him to fail to make child support payments if the law imposes that obligation, support obligation on all parents, and the evidence here is that he's employed? So I would answer that, again, this court's law says that willfulness is a question of fact for the trial court. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that here we have a petitioner who was found by the trial court to have an agenda to terminate the father's rights. So. I think it would be pretty condemning in a DSS case if the trial court found that DSS was actively trying to cause the, the respondent father or mother's rights to be terminated, if they were essentially keeping the child away from them in an effort to create obstacles and stumbling blocks so that we could terminate this parent. And that's what the trial court found here, that the mother had an agenda to terminate his rights years in the making, that she had talked to an attorney and tried to figure out how to do this. And one of the ways that the trial court found the mother tried to do this was by taking a child support arrangement that seemed to be working just fine, which was wage withholding, and ending that. The mother talked to an attorney, how can I terminate his rights? I know, maybe we can change child support enforcement to private, stop the wage withholding, and maybe that'll trip him up. So that's what she did. So I think here, one of the questions that goes directly to willfulness and without justification is not just what the respondent father's doing, but what the petitioner was doing. So I don't think we can look at the respondent father's actions in a vacuum. I think we have to consider whether or not the mother was trying to make him not pay by creating obstacles, by changing things around to do that. Uh, and again, if this were uh, just a civil contempt case, again, if, if the trial court found that in a civil contempt case, the, the petitioner, whether it was DSS or someone else, was again trying put hurdles in the way of the, the respondent from paying child support, I think that would clearly go to the question of willfulness, which again would be a trial, uh, a trial court's fact-finding question. And counsel, I, I know you're trying to close, I apologize. No, yes, sir. Un under 7B 1111A, uh, is the determination of whether or not um, the factors exist one sort of prong, and, and then uh, the determination whether or not to terminate discretionary based on those problems. In other words, is 7B1111A discretionary or must a trial court move to terminate or move to the second step if factors exist? When you say factors, are you talking about when the trial court finds grounds, must it move grounds. to? Sorry. Yes. So I would say that a trial court needs to move to disposition and consider best interest when the trial court has believes it has clear and convincing evidence presented to it that termination grounds exist. So I don't, I don't think the question of discretion comes in so much as whether or not there is evidence before the trial court that it considers clear and convincing. So if the petitioner presents clear and convincing evidence of a termination ground, then I think the trial court makes findings of fact that show what termination ground it's gonna find. It concludes that that termination ground exists and then it makes a best interest determination. Well, I, I, yes, I, believe, I believe 7B1111A says may terminate. So even if there's a finding under uh, A4 that all of the evidence supports uh, a, a finding that termination is possible, 
if it, if the statute says may, is it still discretionary on the part of the judge? Well, ultimately, I, I would agree with Your Honor if you're suggesting that a trial court is not required to terminate a parent's rights, even if the petitioner presents certain evidence. I think, yes, I think, I think termination questions are not required. I, 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 don't, I don't think a trial court's required to terminate a parent's rights. Is that? But, but that's before, even before the best interest determination in step two. Yes, Your Honor. I, I would agree that if a trial court is not satisfied by the petitioner's evidence, it, it of course is not required to adjudicate grounds or anything like that. Does that answer your question? Yes, thank you. Okay, sorry. Um, so, uh, excuse me. In closing, I would just suggest that I think the trial court followed the law here. It considered these witnesses and made credibility determinations. It ultimately found the respondent father's version of events more, more credible than the mother's. And, and that, my basis for saying that is that the findings of fact reflect what the respondent father and his witnesses are more or less saying. That the mother, the petitioner was trying to keep him out of their lives, was trying to prevent him from being a part of their lives, and was actively preventing, thwarting, hindering his ability to be active. So, I think the trial court found that to be clear and convincing and enough to say that the petitioner did not present clear and convincing evidence of any of these termination grounds and dismissed the petition. The Court of Appeals correctly applied the standard review, found the trial court's findings of fact, at least the material ones, um, supported by clear and convincing evidence, and it affirmed. And I think this court should do the same, or in the alternative, this court has the authority to declare review improvidently granted. Um, thank you very much. Thank you, counsel. Now, my colleague says that you can't look at the respondent's actions in a vacuum. As Justice Earls pointed out, the evidence in this case is that his client has income, 20 some odd thousand dollars, was prepared even, he testified, to pay some of that income for child support. He knew where to send it and he did not do it. Uh, you can look at his actions in a vacuum. Those are the facts. He had the money, he knew where to send it, and he didn't do it. He appears to assert that there was justification because Ms. Roberto had an agenda to terminate his parental rights. That appears to be an argument about why his non-payment, which is admitted now, uh, was, was justified. Uh, I didn't mention this in my opening, uh, but Ms. Roberto, of course, is a victim of some pretty severe domestic violence, uh, very severe domestic violence. So if she had an agenda, uh, it's entirely reasonable for her to have that agenda. I think one issue here is about the standard of review, because if you look at the end of the Court of Appeals opinion in paragraph 43, uh, what they say is, uh, based on the findings of fact made, the trial court's conclusion uh, that no grounds existed was not erroneous. That, that's the issue, is that they just ignored, they just didn't make a finding on the right, on a, on a material fact. Um, so if you're just asking if the facts support the conclusions, and if you're concluding from what these findings say that there was no order, then okay, that's correct. But the trial court cannot just ignore an entire prong of the analysis. And I still don't know how to respond to the assertion that Mr. Roberto's not challenging the neglect and abandonment analysis in the Court of Appeals because there was no analysis. All they said was, those grounds don't exist. And Ms. Roberto is saying in this court that that conclusion is wrong. She is challenging those, both of those determinations in the Court of Appeals. There was nothing else for her to point to to say why they got it wrong. 
course she's challenging those. She's pointing to whatever she could have to say that the Court of Appeals made error. The Court of Appeals got it wrong on both of those grounds also. She is asking this court to reverse the Court of Appeals opinion. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thank you both.